Paul has uh, been addressing uh, the issue at the end of chapter 6 about being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And uh, he talks about what Isaiah and Second uh, Samuel say about coming out from amongst the world, the ungodly, and you know, staying away from what is unclean and being sons and daughters of God, uh, you know, says the Almighty. And then in verse 7, Therefore having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So the, the promise uh, that we will be children of God, that, that by coming out of the world and separating ourselves uh, from worldly things, uh, we will be made sons of God. Uh, Bible study, midweek Bible study that we have with a bunch of the guys, uh, one of the things we talk about are the, the if-then promises. Uh, you know, if you will do this, then you will experience that. And the idea of you know, if we will separate ourselves from ungodly things and worldly things, and then we have the promise of the blessing of being children of God. And so that is why, you know, Paul goes on to say, you know, we, we should uh, strive all the more towards being children of God and perfecting the holiness and the fear of God because of the benefits, uh, the benefit of the relationship with God, uh, the benefits uh, that come into our lives and uh, in our relationship with God. Uh, verse 2, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. There, there was a closed-hearted mentality amongst uh, the Corinthians towards Paul and even towards this message as he is encouraging them to depart from worldliness and uh, not associate themselves with ungodly people. They have an attitude that uh, somehow, you know, there's something good or something better to be had by being associated with the world and worldly people. Uh, you know, they, they have the mindset like many in our faith today, that there are benefits to being associated with the world and with the worldly. And uh, Paul is pointing out that the greater benefit is in being associated with God. And uh, as far as how we might benefit uh, the ungodly and those people, you know, be not unequally yoked together with an unbelieving world, uh, the greater benefit is in inviting those people to depart from the world and to associate themselves with God. So, so we have, uh, you know, the the added attraction for them to, you know, if you if you desire a relationship with us, the godly, those of the church, you know, come and be associated with us as we are in fellowship with God experience uh, what it means to be in fellowship with God by being in fellowship with his children. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled 
with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. The uh, continued persecution that Paul is uh, experiencing and uh, being imprisoned, you know, he's identifying his attachment uh, with them. For indeed, when we come, uh, came, past tense, to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us is in nothing. Suffer loss from us in nothing, rather. So, uh, you know, Titus had come to them having been to the church at Corinth and explained to them that Paul's letters had you know, been received by the church at Corinth and had created a tremendous amount of sorrow, but that, and he's going to talk about it even more, but that it had brought repentance, that, that while it caused a great mourning in the church as they received this letter of rebuke from Paul, it, it quickly results in the correction that Paul had hoped for. So in that end, uh, the, the letter, while it brought grief, it wasn't a thing that, uh, you know, was for destruction. It, it brought about uh, the work of godliness that Paul had intended. And uh, when uh, Titus had spent the time amongst them and then come to Paul to relay that, it, it brought a rejoicing to them. You know, Paul is uh, openly expressing that, you know, it broke his heart that it broke their heart. But, uh, you know, the fact that it brought about, uh, you know, a godliness in their lives uh, causes it in the end to be, you know, a thing of joy. For, go for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Uh, that is a really great verse in a lot of regards in, in um, examining uh, repentance, individuals' repentance, and our own repentance. Uh, you know, there's gonna be sorrow when uh, we realize our sin and when we repent. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, a heartbreaking thing to realize uh, where you're at uh, in sin, and uh, you know, a great example, a, a great contrasting example is uh, the sorrow that comes upon Peter versus the sorrow that comes upon Judas. Uh, you know, Judas betrays Jesus. Peter denies Jesus. Uh, you know, in a way, there's a similarity in even Peter's conduct. As he's there in the courtyard, he's, you know, vehemently with cursing 
renouncing Jesus, renouncing even knowing Jesus, and the scripture records that he makes eye contact with Jesus as he's saying those cruel things about his teacher. He's filled with sorrow and heartbreak. And uh, we see all the way up to the end of John that that's a burden to Peter, but Jesus restores Peter. Why? Because there's a repentance in his heart. There's the heartbreak uh, over the things that he's done, and he's sorrowful to the point where change is going to take place. Uh, You know, contrast that with Judas and filled with sorrow and yet uh, a hopelessness that causes Judas to go out and hang himself. Uh, there's there's something to examine within that, even to the point of you know individuals that struggle with that level of guilt and depression. We need to understand that there's an invitation for repentance. You know, you could be a guy like Judas. You could be a woman who uh, did something like Judas, and yet, if you were to repent. Uh, your heart might be filled with sorrow and, and depression, but there's the invitation of Christ, which would restore that heart and restore uh, that individual. The the wickedness we see here, read it again, for godly sorrow produces repentance, the, the actual turning around and going the opposite direction in behavior, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. Uh, unfortunately, uh, ungodly sorrow is only filled with regret. You know, the the, uh, the the godly sorrow that produces repentance, it doesn't have any regret in it. You know, while, uh, you know, the individual is exposed and their sin is seen, uh, because they're getting right with God, there's no regret in the process. There might even be embarrassment. There, there might be, uh, you know, shame, but not regret, because the person is uh, fixing their relationship with God. Not Judas, not those who take the route of only being filled with sorrow. There's uh, a lot of people who get caught, and uh, when they're caught, uh, there's tremendous sorrow, uh, but there's no repentance. And... Uh, That is most regrettable. Verse 11. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Paul's desire was that these people would have a proper relationship and standing with God. That was his whole motivation. In confronting them, his desire was that they would benefit from it. It was not 
that he wanted to make sure that the person who was in sin got in trouble. It wasn't so that uh, you know the person who was being wronged uh, somehow uh, you know had the uh, account balanced on their behalf. I mean, if we uh, you know talk about this specifically, there was the man who was uh, living in sexual sin with his stepmother. So, you know, the father's being wrong, the stepmother's, you know, in the wrong, the, the, the son, the stepson is in the wrong. And, uh, you know, Paul is saying, I w- didn't have anything to do with me trying to embarrass anyone, trying to, you know, drag somebody out like the Pharisees did, you know, with the woman caught in the act of adultery so that the whole world could see that wickedness. It had nothing to do uh, with those circumstances, individuals in that way. The desire was that his confronting it would lead to this level of repentance and that people's relationship with God would be restored to what they were supposed to be. His motivation was a love for them. People don't often view it that way. If they, if they are being confronted, uh, you know, the, the feeling, the sensation is that it's as though they're being arrested, as though they're being put on trial, as though they're being judged, as though they're being exposed for the whole world to see. And, and that's not what Paul's motivation is in the slightest. His motivation is that in confronting the situation, the people who are trapped in the sin would be delivered from it and experience the joy and the fulfillment that's in the Lord. That's why he goes through that, you know, explanation there beginning in 11. Observe this very thing that your sorrow and godly, you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourself. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication in all things. You proved yourselves to be clear in this manner. You know, the proper response uh, produces such beneficial things in uh, even a confrontation such as that. Verse 13, therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed in you. What what a um, blessing, you know, the, in our world of, of instant information, uh you know, we don't get to experience the delayed gratification like this uh, the way they did. You know, they, they have this period of time where the letter's been sent and they're waiting and then Titus has to travel there before not only news, but the firsthand experience of seeing, oh, this church has truly repented. And he gets there and he can see that, you know, the, the joy and the fulfillment uh, of lives restored. Um, I've, I've had a couple of occasions like that where, you know, I will be at a particular church or fellowship and, uh, you know, see a certain individual. In fact, I just got uh, a text message uh, from Scott Gallatin uh, recently where uh, he said, do you know uh, a certain young man and uh, you know, gave me his name? And I, in fact, I, I do. And he was able to report that uh, he's d- doing well. He's in that fellowship in New York and uh, involved uh, 
uh, with Scott and uh, the Lord's working in his life. It's a, it's a great blessing to hear when when progress is taking place and growth is taking place and maturity, especially when you you uh, sort of walk away like I don't know how that's going to turn out. I I wonder if uh, you know that person is going to continue to walk with the Lord and be in fellowship and experience growth and maturity. So um, they get the news. They're they're overjoyed by that when Spirit uh, when uh, Titus comes because his spirit has been refreshed by you all for. If any in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. Now you think about that. <clears throat> For everything that Paul has had to say that's in a negative light, it, here we get the sense that he's told Titus, uh, you wait till you meet that church at Corinth. You know, there are some mature Christians there. There is some strength there. There is some spiritual foundation that has been set there. And when Titus comes to Paul and gives him the news that, yes, growth, repentance, maturity, progress, you know, Paul is able to say, hey, our boasting was not in vain. You know, they, they actually are, you know, a, a you know, certain level of uh, mature Christian that is it's a blessing to hear. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. What, what an interesting statement in the midst of uh, all this confrontation and correction that Paul is giving to hear that Paul has relayed to Titus that there's a strength and a maturity and a progress in the church at Corinth that once Titus got there and experienced it and brings that message back to Paul, that the attitude from Paul is sort of, well, of course, you know, of course that's, you know, what's going on because they are a people who, who have, uh, you know, a certain strength and, and foundation set in them. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction and abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in riches of their liberality. Now, uh, the riches of liberality. Uh, this is in their work and their service and their giving uh, to the Lord. Uh, this, this verse and others like it are used incorrectly by political and spiritual liberals today to uh, promote the idea of sinful liberalism. You know, the, oh, look, you know, here the church is being admonished and uh, encouraged to be liberals. Uh, not in a sinful sense. Not, not in the sense of forsaking uh, Christian doctrine, not in the sense of abandoning the tenets of our faith. You know, more than anything, the liberality that Paul is specifically speaking of here is, uh, he goes on in a couple points here to talk about the great abundance of money that is being given. Uh, and, uh, you know, to, to go to a political sense of things, uh, the surveys that are done between liberals and Christians, uh, liberals and conservatives today, uh, 
conservatives are still out giving liberals by more than 50%. And that's, that's taking into account that liberals, you know, always want to include within that their political giving, that they're giving to this and that organization. Uh, that's just furthering their own end. It's, it's continuing the same political liberality that, that uh, you know, is the very machine they're working for, working within. Uh, conservatives and conservative Christians give to nonprofit organizations. And, and, and you, know, you think about that, like you watch PBS, you watch these nonprofit organizations, and you hear about the great endowments and the great funding, and you think, well, surely the liberal communities are, are giving you know, more abundantly uh, to this organization. Specific organizations, they do give, uh, you know, to much higher degrees. Overall, they're still more than 50% behind what conservatives give to nonprofits and nonprofit organizations and charitable entities and, and charitable works, which they don't get anything back from. <laughs> doesn't doesn't benefit them financially. So, you know, this, this mentality that is here is the idea of, of uh, you know a Christian liberty of uh, liberality of giving and caring for with love and charity. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministry to the saints, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Their giving was not through our manipulation. They were already given over to the Lord. They were already people who wanted to care for the work of the ministry. They were already demonstrating that they were giving great sums of money to ministry works and sending out apostles and sending out missionaries and we arrive on the scene and they want to include us in that giving in that work in that service to the lord so you know paul is clarifying to those that criticize him from corinth that we weren't manipulators we didn't come into the macedonian church we didn't come into your church and turn the screws on you until we got the money out of you that we wanted you guys, you know, did what you wanted to do. The churches in Macedonia did what they wanted to do. And why? The same thing we saw going on in the book of Acts as those people were being converted to the faith. They sell everything they have. Uh, they give generously to everyone around them. They live uh, having all things in common together, especially at this time and in this age, uh, you know, of the church. They, they were... Uh, very much of the mindset that Jesus Christ was coming back immediately. And so why hang on to any of these earthly things? Sell the property off. Nobody was looking at it like, oh, well, we're going to live and be very old and we got to make provision for ourselves. And so we got to have all of these things in order in order to live out our, our you know retirement years. Their mindset was uh, Christ is coming back any minute, so it doesn't make any sense for us to hang on to any of these things, which also shows you how adamantly 
the imminent return of Jesus Christ was being taught by the apostles. Uh, you know, th this idea today, people criticize our longing for and looking for the immediate return of Jesus Christ. And they act like, oh, well, that's something that, you know, the modern church has invented and is manipulating people. with." That was very much the mindset of the early church. You know, Im imagine if you took your entire retirement plan, all, all of your property and liquidated all of it so that you just had cash resources and then you started living communally with all the Christians around you and everybody just put all their money in a common pool and you just lived off from that together. That I mean, you'd have to be very convinced that uh, you weren't going to be around for a long time. Now, <clears throat> some people look at them and say, well, they were naive because the Lord didn't return. In that sense, okay, I'll take that as a point of discussion. But how about this? Most of them didn't live very long because they were put to death for their faith. So, I mean, in that sense, they were going to be in the presence of the Lord very soon. And uh, they needed to do that also from the fact that they were being persecuted and couldn't get jobs anymore and their businesses were being shut down. So caring for one another in that way. The liberality, it was their relationship with God is what compelled them. And then they were uh, very much uh, wholeheartedly giving to uh, the work of Paul and his uh, fellow ministers. You know, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency, verse 4, that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministry of the saints. And not only that we, as we had hoped, but they gave uh, themselves to the first they gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God so we urged Titus that as he had begun so he would also complete his grace in you as well but as you abound in everything in faith and speech and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love for us see that you abound in this grace also I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Uh, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago. That is the giving that he's referring to. But now you also must complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also must be a completion out of what you have. So uh, <clears throat> the backstory is they've taken up a collection. And they are continuing to take up a collection. And Paul is saying, you, you need to follow through with that. It, it can't just be uh, that, uh, you know, it's in word and in deed, you know, not just in word, rather. It needs to be in deed also. You need to follow through uh, with the giving. The nice thing uh, about this is this gift isn't coming to Paul. Uh, this this gift specifically is going to the church at Jerusalem. 
and uh, he's going to send messengers with that gift. Um, there is uh, a document uh, that became known as uh, the Didache, which the apostles uh, set forward as to how ministers were supposed to act. And, uh, the, you know, you can see within the title, did act E, you know, uh, this is how ministers were supposed to act. And, uh, they specifically record that, you know, there were prophets such as Agabus in the day. And if prophets were to come amongst them, uh, they generally speaking, were not supposed to take up collections. But if they did take up a collection, the collection needed to be taken up for others. And they also were not supposed to uh, call for feasts to be given. So, you know, if if a prophet shows up and the word goes out, oh, there's a prophet in town. And like, again, I say, like Agabus, the things he predicted, the things that he taught, they came true. So, so the people sort of had an intimidation factor in play of, oh, there's a literal prophet in town. Uh, so if they took up collections, those collections were to be sent to others, other churches specifically, or, or widows and orphans, those specifically in need. Uh, if they took up collections for themselves or asked for collections to be taken up for themselves, the church was told to reject them, that they weren't sincere. Uh, they weren't to call for feasts to be held in their honor. If they called for feasts to be held, uh, it was supposed to be for the poor in the community. They had very specific guidelines. And, uh, you know, oh, that we held to the Didache today. <laughs> you know, when the evangelists show up in town, you know, what is it they say, you know, evangelists today, you know, they blow in, they blow up, and they blow out. You know, they they're 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 there for a big show very often and uh i i had the unfortunate um experience years ago uh working for a video production company uh i had to work on the video edit uh we had been hired to uh to edit the footage for a particular church uh in the bangor area and uh they had an evangelist husband and wife team that came and uh, this evangelist husband and wife team uh we had the the video footage of them doing this so it isn't like you know just opinion this literally happened uh they as a church understood the finances of their congregation and the pastor and the evangelist had agreed upon sums of money for each night of the week that these people spoke at their church and uh, they would take up the collection uh, early on in the service and send it out back and uh, tally it up as quickly as they could and they would come out with a sign that they would hold up in the back of the auditorium that the pastor could see that had the total written on it so that he would know if they had reached that evening's goal or not. And if they did not, then they would immediately begin uh, the worship service build up to the second offering. 
And there were nights where they took three and four offerings until they got the sum of money that they wanted uh, out of uh, that audience uh, that was there. It was so bad, right? I mean, they did this for a week. Imagine going to church every night for a week, one, two, three, four hours a night. They did this for a week. Again, I, I worked on the edit of the, the, the video for this. <clears throat> that by the end of the, you've gone to church every night for a week, and they've taken multiple offerings every night. I mean, you pretty much get to the point where you're like, leave the checkbook at home. You know what I'm saying? Don't bring any cash with you. Um, they, they extended their stay by two days. Because they had a specific sum of money that they wanted to get in the week and they were way short of that. So rather than just cut their losses and leave, no, they stayed there and just rang out the sheep uh, even more. They stayed for additional days until they, in the end, as I understand it, they never achieved the financial goal that they wanted to, but they took that church and that congregation for everything they could uh, in that, you know, and, and then years later when uh, the pastor, uh, I don't think he got arrested, but he, he was prosecuted. He was in the process of being charged with having embezzled more than $180,000 from that. Everyone was shocked. They couldn't believe it. Just how in the world could such a thing happen? You know, if you, if you understand the mindset of what's, in the scripture, you'll understand true and false ministers. Paul is saying, you guys had an intention, and you guys were taking up a collection, and you need to do that, and you need to follow through. But he's not saying that on his own behalf. He's saying that that there's, there's a group of Christians in Jerusalem who are now homeless because of the persecution of the Jews and the Roman Empire, they're being imprisoned, right? They've already killed many of the, the Christians that are there. You know, in the very beginning, we read they kill Stephen, then they kill James, and they're preparing to kill Peter. They're killing the leadership of the church. Paul is now saying, look, we, we were taking up a gathering, we we're taking up an offering, and you guys need to follow through that, and it needs to go to the people at Jerusalem that it was intended for. You need to make sure that you follow through with uh, the giving that you had intended. Uh, for if there is a is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. You, you know, there's no set amount that you have to give in this regard. Give what you can to the Lord. For I do not mean that others <clears throat> should be eased and you burdened. But by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack. Other churches have already given. And now they, you know, they've they've given what they can, and now it's your turn to give. There's a balance in this whole thing. You know, what they can't do now, now you're gonna pick up the slack. You know, abundance may supply their lack, and their abundance also may supply your lack. You know, when 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 you could not give, they were giving. And now that they cannot give, you're giving. That there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathers much had nothing left over. He who gathers little had no lack, right? I mean, 
when the big giant mega church can give a giant check to that ministry, that's wonderful. You know, when the little tiny church takes up a little tiny offering and they give their gift, it's equal to the, the mega church's gift. It's super tiny in comparison, but it's what that church was capable of doing. You know, the person who has abundance that can give abundantly, praise God. The person who has little, who can give a small amount, praise God. Everyone is supplied for in the process. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, went to you of his own accord. You know, the the charge was put to him to go minister to you, but when he came to you, it was from his own motivation. He understood the need, and he came because the need had been expressed, but, it, you know, nobody was prodding him to go to you and to be your minister and to care for you. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches and, you know, clearly stated, we don't know who that is. <laughs> Other than, I mean, there's lots of speculation and there's lots of good cause to think, but the simplicity of it is uh, that the, the one who comes with Titus is of good report. And not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind. Avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift, which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent them, our brother, whom we have often provided diligent or he has often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. If anyone inquires about this, Titus, uh, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them and before the churches, the proof of your love and our boasting on your behalf. You know, the great work that was being done uh, in Paul, through Paul, and amongst uh, the church at Corinth, these ministers that come uh, are some of the strongest evidence that uh, Paul is, in fact, an apostle uh, to the church, right? I mean, that's a lot of the argument here is that somehow Paul is lesser and somehow Paul is not an official apostle. And what Paul is demonstrating is that his influence in the church is management level. That, that uh, you know, he's sending Titus, that there are groups of men that he is working with that those groups of men that he is working with and sending out are honorable men who you know work within the church and, and are 
you know, actually uh, good ministers and faithful at what they do. Um, you know, there's a, you know been a handful of uh, people along the way that uh, are are fakes, and uh, they make their way around. I I was mentioning this morning the International House of Prayer and uh, the Kansas City Prophets, and you know these groups of false teachers that have been in and around Christianity for years. Um, there was a man that came here uh, a number of years ago, um, Matt Harvey, a faithful servant, great, diligent brother, uh, you know, works in and around Calvary chapels here in the state uh, for many, many years now. He was part of our, our original youth group when I was a youth pastor and uh, he encountered a man uh, who uh, found out what we were doing up here, and that guy sort of followed Matt here. So at the time, Matt was doing street ministry down in Bar Harbor. On the weekends, would go down and do music and uh, preach and share the gospel and lead people to Christ, invite people to church, send people to other churches down in Bar Harbor. And uh, this weirdo that had come across Matt, shows up uh, here uh, from southern New England. And uh, right away I can tell he's he's not of the same spirit we are. And uh, so I take this guy aside and just say, you know, well, we're going out, and I'm glad you've come up here to hang out and minister with us. But I, I just told him I, I get the sense that you're of a different spirit, that there's something about you that doesn't line up with us. And I uh, just want you to know that when we go down to Bar Harbor, uh, we, we aren't there to cause problems, cause fights, stir up a crowd. Uh, our, our ministry and our message is for him who has ears to hear. So we're going to go down there and uh, we're going to share the gospel with the people that want to receive the gospel. There are always going to be people that want to fight and argue, and they can go fight and argue with somebody else. We're, we're not there for that. Well, we go down, and sure enough, immediately he, he starts yelling at the crowd and rebuking people, and just uh, he's driving people away from us. And so I snap him out of the crowd and take him aside and say, clearly uh, you are of a different spirit and don't understand what we're trying to do. So cut it out. And you're now going to stay with me. You can't go off and do your own thing. And uh, we'll go take a second attempt at this. And you just follow my lead and do what I'm doing. And so we go out. And he, even as he's trying to keep himself quiet, he's arguing. And, and, he, and he like zeroes in on the people who have arguments. And he just wants to stir things up. And I have to shut him down from that. And you know, show him, look, you know, you're arguing and I'm trying to talk to these two young girls from the College of the Atlantic and, and you're driving them away from the conversation. So stop doing that. And uh, moments later, doing all, I have to pull him aside and I have him sit down on a park bench and say, look, you say you're a Christian and this is what you're about. And I, you know, I don't think you are, but we'll have that discussion later. So what I want you to do is I want you to just sit here on this park bench and pray. You know, if you're of the same mindset as us, sit here and pray. So he sits there and he's clearly upset and, 
you know, visibly distraught. And we go through this thing. We end up having a confrontational discussion later. And he shows up the next day to tell me off. And, you know, we have a big go around about that. And we send him on his way. And uh, as he's going on, as he's leaving the state, you know, leaving this church to leave this state, he's got a whole bunch of stuff to tell me. And uh, I, I take that information and I hang on to it. And in that, he drops a couple names of fellow ministers. And I just make note of that. And one of them was Lloyd Pulley from uh, New Jersey. And uh, I don't see Lloyd for months. But when I do, or it's in the spring of the year, we're down in uh, Maryland, I, I run into Lloyd and I just say, hey, have you ever heard of this guy? And he just about explodes. And he's like, no way. Where did you meet him? I say, he came up, said he was part of your church. And he, he stops me. Lloyd says, oh, wait, wait, wait. Well, and he calls over a couple of other guys that are from his ministry. He says, you got to come over here. And they come over and he says, go ahead, Will. Uh, lay it on us. So I start talking. Those two guys explode. They're like, where did you meet him? And uh, they end up explaining to me that this guy has made a circuit around a bunch of the Calvary chapels. Everywhere he goes, he's caused massive problems. At one point, they had actually sent him with a missionary team overseas. The, the missionary organization overseas called them up and said, we're putting this guy back on a plane today. He's actually been ordered to leave the country. Okay. Point is, Paul's an apostle functioning at a level of management where the people he handles, the people that he works with, the churches that he interacts with, everyone is benefited by the process. Everyone is experiencing good and nurturing and strengthening things through the work and the ministry of Paul. There are those examples out there where everywhere somebody goes, it blows up, wrecks, ruins, tears down, you know, defeats, does not accomplish. Paul talks about the fact that Titus and this faithful brother and the others that are go, they're, they're credentials to us. They, they are a testimony of our ministry and our work. Why? Because that's what we planted in them. What, what we fostered in them, when they're in your midst, you're going to see what they are. You're going to be able to bear the fruit, see the fruit, taste, experience, and understand the fruit of not, not so much even who they are. What you're experiencing is Christ. Christ in them, that was Christ in us, that we imparted to them, that they're now imparting to you life, fruitfulness, growth, abundance. So look for that. You know, be a fruit inspector. When you, when you experience people in ministries and circumstances, look for it to be the positive affirmation of Jesus Christ, not the negative confirmation of, of the flesh you'll you'll know what you're dealing with make sense so we'll pick up with chapter nine next week why don't we pray father i thank you uh for our ability to be together and i pray that you would continue to minister uh, through us i pray that like titus and this faithful brother and these faithful ministers we would be reflective of your character, that your work in our lives would produce life and abundance in those that we minister to. Use us 
as your children. Use us as your ministers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.